Our scripture of the day is from the book of Luke, uh, chapter 18, verses 18 through 23, and chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. And they're good contrast. It's really good scripture for the lesson today. First one's the rich ruler. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all of these I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus and Zacchaeus. He entered Jericho, was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector and he was rich. He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in statue. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He had gone in to be the guest of a man who was a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Uh, I'm assuming y'all are the ones that stayed up all night, uh, about till 1.30 in the morning, because you care a lot. Uh, I did not stay up that late, because I don't care at all. Uh, my wife and I are actually Alabama grads, so we, uh, we, we slept really well. Um, <laughs> but before you kind of discount us, we, uh, we do have a, a special place in our hot hearts for uh, Oxford. My wife's family is from Jackson. Uh, she was actually the first one in their family to not go to Ole Miss. She was the true rebel. But we come to Oxford quite often just to see them and, and come to the Alabama games here. So I'm excited to be here today. This is my first time. I've been to Oxford a lot, but this is my first time worshiping here with y'all. And uh, I'm excited. I was really honored when Les told me to come here. And since I'm only going to be here for one day, I figured I would talk about a hard subject uh, so that when you have issues with it, when you have complaints, like when Les gets back in town, just kind of single file outside of his office and uh, take it up with him. But I want to talk about repentance, uh, that classic Christian word that we use a lot that means to change, uh, to make a 180-degree turn. You're headed this way, and you realize you're going the wrong direction, and you head back the other way by God's grace. The reason that I have been fascinated with the subject of repentance is since my time being an RUF minister at Arkansas State, one of the biggest fears I've seen in my students is the fear of being wrong, that they could possibly be living the wrong way, that they could possibly have the wrong opinion on whatever hot button issue is today, or that someone else could be right and be able to speak into their life and cause them to change terrifies them. And I also don't think this is just a problem that we see on campus. There's a social psychologist that I like. His name is Jonathan Haidt. 
he wrote a book called The Righteous Mind. And he says the reason for this problem in our culture, which is causing all sorts of anger and division and polarization and cynicism, is because we are a culture that is obsessed with righteousness. What he means by that is we're a culture that is obsessed with wanting to be right. Whether it's an opinion about masks or politics or even something as trivial as sports, we want everyone to think we're right. We want to convince ourselves that we're right. I'm the biggest victim of this impulse. I have literally been in shouting matches with students 10 years younger than me about how Alabama doesn't cheat. <laughs> and they don't. They really don't. So you, can, you can't prove me wrong. But I think the biblical teaching about repentance has something to say into our cultural moment with our obsession with righteousness, because Jesus' invitation for Christians to live a life of repentance is an invitation to freely admit that we're wrong. To freely admit that we're wrong because we can be righteous not by being right, but we can find righteousness in another way. But repentance is hard. We don't like it. That's why we fear it so much. So I want us to look at these two characters today, to see both the pain and the gain of repentance. That's all we're going to look at, two points, the pain and the gain of repentance. So let's look at the pain of repentance in the context of this character, the rich ruler. We see him in Luke 18, uh, and the, the lesson of the rich ruler, I, I'll just give it to you right now. The lesson of the rich ruler is this, that self-righteousness and self-deception go hand in hand. That the more self-righteous we are, what the Bible would say the more self-deceived we actually are. Now, it seems like this guy, the rich ruler, has some reason to at least be tempted towards this notion of self-righteousness. He's an accomplished citizen. He, he has a lot of money, probably has some influence in society. We're not sure exactly what type of ruler he is, but at the very least, he's an accomplished Jew. He even tells Jesus how good he is at following the law. So I imagine him coming up to Jesus with a little bit of arrogance, kind of patting on Jesus' shoulder like he's a buddy, kind of equal, and saying, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, whether this was a genuine question or not, I don't really know, but my hunch is I don't think this was a genuine question. Many times in the New Testament, we see that accomplished Jews come up to Jesus and ask him questions to test him, to try to trap him. I think that's exactly what this man was trying to do, was trying to do. because as we look at Jesus' response, what we see is that in classic Jesus fashion, he usually likes to turn the test around on the people that are trying to test him. And so he does this. He says, you're the accomplished Jew. You know the law. He lists out some of the law. And the man, excited for it, ready to boast of himself, ready to kind of show his self-righteous resume, says, I've done all these since I was young. All these I've accomplished. And then Jesus turns it into a test. He gives this invitation, which I would call an invitation to repentance. He says, okay, one thing you lack. Go sell all your possessions, distribute them to the poor, because you're going to have treasure in heaven with me, and then come and follow me. Now, this seems like a bit of an extreme invitation that Jesus gives. To leave your whole life that you have here and come and follow me is the lesson of the story of the rich ruler that we need to empty our pockets right now, sell our cars, and go and follow Jesus. I don't think that's necessarily the case. The book of Luke is pretty true, is pretty real about 
the dangers and the temptations that come along with having wealth. But the reason I think Jesus gives this man specifically this invitation is because he has to give him an extreme invitation to get past, to get past his extreme self-righteousness. Because this man refuses to see that he's actually not as good as he thinks he is. He's self-deceived. And Jesus has to give him an, illus- or an invitation that breaks past all that religious facade, all that self-righteousness, and breaks into what he really does care about. Jesus is saying, oh, you think you're a follower of God? You're actually just a slave to money, power, comfort, control. He isn't who he thought he was. But while Jesus' invitation to repentance with this man can seem a bit cruel, like on the surface when I read it, I was like, man, Jesus is being kind of tough here. That's a high standard to really invite this man to. What I don't want us to miss is Jesus' kindness in inviting him to this. Because with Jesus, ignorance is not bliss. He loves this man enough to not let him live in self-deception, hiding behind deeds of self-righteousness. He wants to show this man who he really is so that he will no longer live a lie. But the tragedy of the story is that this man rejects that invitation. He goes away sad. It's kind of a cautionary tale. What would my response be? Well, let's look at what makes this man sad. Let's consider, why is this man so sad? And I think the reason is because repentance is painful. I was thinking about this story, uh, and it kind of reminded me of this 2006 movie, the movie Click. The movie Click is based on a plot of this guy named Michael Newman. Michael Newman is given a remote control that is able to control his life. And really what he wants to use the remote control is, is to fast forward all of the parts of life that he hates. When his wife is nagging at him, when his kids are disrupting him, when his boss is being too hard on him, he can just press fast forward. When he presses fast forward, his body goes into what's called like autopilot mode. And all that is an illustration for is that his true self, who he really is, takes over. And he just kind of lives that out while he's not really conscious of it. Later in the movie, Michael Newman is given the power to rewind his life and to watch who he was in those moments where he was, his true self took over. And what he finds makes him sad. Because instead of this good husband, instead of this loving father, instead of a good employee, what he sees is he's actually a miserable person. Learning the truth about himself crushes him. He's sad. And it's not just that he's sad because he's not as good as he thought he was. He's sad because of who he was was impacting everyone around him. It was contributing to his wife's misery, his kid's misery, his work, his co-worker's misery. And I think we see this with the rich ruler too. Look, look what Jesus invites him to. He says, go sell all your possessions and distribute them to the poor. Meaning, what your repentance will do is actually bless your community, those around you. And this man's rejection of his invitation to repentance leaves the poor in his community poor. Self-righteousness is just self-deception. And it leads to selfishness in general, where it impacts every part of who we are. What's the pain of repentance? The pain of repentance is we don't like looking in the mirror. I'm the worst culprit of this. 
We don't like looking in the mirror. We don't like seeing the fact that who we think we are might not be who we really are. And Jesus' invitation is always geared at exposing us to our true selves. I was thinking about how much I don't like this and just in a stupid illustration, I I was thinking about how I've had a friend who's I've been eating with before and he's uh, he's seen like he told me that there was stuff in my teeth that I was eating and how much I don't like that moment because to be honest, I would rather go the whole lunch, him walk away, never tell me that and just think I was like, I looked good the whole time. He was enjoying me the whole time. Like ignorance is bliss because when you're exposed, it hurts. You feel foolish. You feel dumb. And the scary part of this story is that this man is a religious person. And I don't think that's by mistake. That the greatest temptation for self-righteousness is often in the community of God. I'm a pastor. This terrifies me that I could be most susceptible to quench my thirst for righteousness by just going to church, showing up, doing the things, and making myself feel better about myself so that I know I'm better than those people out there. Repentance is painful. It introduces ourselves to ourselves. But it's not just pain. And I think that's what the rich ruler missed, and I don't want us to miss that either. There is also much gain in repentance, gain that far outweighs the cost of having to have a reckoning with ourselves. We see this in the story of Zacchaeus. Most likely, these stories Luke intended us to read them together. They are a perfect contrast of one another. I hope we see that. They're two sides of the same coin of repentance, both the pain and the gain. So here's my second point, the gain of repentance. We're going to look at the character of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is also a rich man. But his wealth is not probably, most likely, as admirable as the rich ruler. Luke notes in uh, chapter 19, verse 2, that he was the chief tax collector. Now, that doesn't mean he was just in finance. It means that he was actually more like he was in organized crime. Because tax collectors back in this day were were, were Jews that lived in Jewish communities that were charged by the Roman government to collect taxes from their neighbors. What the Roman government didn't care about was whether they collected more taxes than the Romans charged. As long as Rome got their cut, they could charge whatever they wanted, and they often charged way more than Rome required, which means he was stealing from his neighbors, probably his relatives. He was notoriously an unrighteous and unpopular guy in town. But surprisingly in this story, Zacchaeus' obvious unrighteousness, and this is what shocks me, his obvious unrighteousness actually makes him more attractive to Jesus, and it makes him actually see repentance as more of a gain. It opens him up to see that repentance is actually a good thing. We see this in verse 5, when Jesus looks up at, into the tree and says, Zacchaeus, come, hurry down. I must stay at your house today. And Zacchaeus' response should shock us. It's the exact opposite response of the rich ruler's uh, response to Jesus. It says, he hurried down and he received Jesus joyfully. He received Jesus joyfully. Let that sink in. I don't know about you, but I don't like people coming over to my house and like seeing dirty laundry or kids' toys out 
or we have a dog that sheds like crazy, like we usually like rush and clean the floors before anybody comes over. Just like we have our life together, trust me. I want you to see that by our clean house. But when, Zacche- when Jesus was coming over to Zacchaeus' house, what Zacchaeus knew was not that he would just see his dirty house, just see all the things he's bought with this dirty money, but that Jesus was going to see him, see all of him, see all his unrighteousness. And it made him joyful. It made him joyful that Jesus was going to see who he really was. Why? Well, I don't think it's because Zacchaeus knew he didn't have to change. I think that's often how we talk about the gospel. You know, Jesus loves you as you are. That's true. But that is not a license to stay as you are. And Zacchaeus knew this because as soon as Jesus starts coming over to his house, he starts basically speed talking to Jesus, showing, telling Jesus how much he started to change his life. I've given away half my goods. I'm gonna, if I've defrauded anyone ever, which was probably everyone in the community, I'm going to restore it fourfold. What's interesting to note about that is he's actually going back to the Old Testament and following the Old Testament laws for restitution. He's saying, I'm joyfully following the Old Testament law that I've been rejecting for years. What made him so joyful to follow God's law, to make these radical changes, to have his life flipped upside down? I want you to put yourself in his shoes for a moment. Zacchaeus is a man who lives in a community of people who he has sinned against for years. In some way or another, his sin has impacted everyone around him. Just think for a second how he's treated in that town. I'm sure nobody has looked him in the eye for years. I'm sure nobody has said his proper name without some slur attached to it for a really long time. And I know for certain nobody would be caught dead going to his house in fear that his unrighteousness, his obvious unrighteousness, would somehow stain their reputation, rub off on them, and make them dirty. And here's Jesus looking at him in the eye, calling him by his proper name, and inviting himself over to Zacchaeus' house. The man that everyone avoided because of how obviously unrighteous he was, Jesus pursued. He pursued with joy. It was actually his unrighteousness that attracted him to Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus has never known a love like this, and it breaks him. Repentance just starts bursting out of him. Knowing Christ and knowing what he knows about Christ and how his unrighteousness is not a hindrance to being with him, it's actually what gets Christ to be with them, breaks him. That's the motivation for repentance. That's the gain of repentance. Repentance is not you need to change so that God will be happy with you. It's that God is happy with you, and that frees you to change. This story, both these stories, show us what's behind or a different, a, a different route to pursuing righteousness and also a different way of engaging the invitation to repentance. I'll explain it this way. My wife loves to put flowers in our house. We live pretty close to a farmer's market. And on Saturday, we'll take our son down there and we'll get some flowers and put them in our house in a vase. One day, um, we had flowers in our house and we left for vacation. 
it was a week vacation, and we got back, and we were like, oh, my gosh, the house stinks. What is happening? What we didn't know was that flowers, like, spoil. We're not that advanced. We're not, not that good at keeping flowers, so we didn't know. So it took us a while to figure it out, but finally we figured out that it was the flowers that smelled. So we threw the flowers away, and then we poured all the water out of the vase. It was awful. But then we had a problem. The vase still stunk. And we cared a lot about this vase. It was a McCarty vase, if that gets me any cred in here. So we wanted, we wanted to fix it. And it was one of those McCarty vases that's like wide at the bottom but has like a really narrow top. And so we didn't have a scrubber that could get down it. So we were left with two options. We could either spray Febreze down into the vase or spray some perfume or something, deodorant, and it, it masked the smell. Try to, try to cover it up. Or, and what we decided to do, thankfully, was to put soapy water in it, let it sit there for a while, and then turn the water on, and it all just overflows. So we poured water into it to clean it. The human condition, the human predicament, is that we find out that we're the smelly vase. That there is sin, there is death, there is corruption, there is unrighteousness inside of all of us. To what degree we're aware of that varies, but we know it's there. And we have two options when we, of how to deal with that, of how to deal with our stench. We could put Febreze over it. We can mash the smell. Usually this looks like looking really good on the outside, trying to get as many accomplishments, building your resume, whether it's a spiritual resume or whether it's a career resume, building your income, having a good reputation in society, just making everybody happy around you so you feel better about yourself. What these are are just masks. They just mask the smell. The other option is what I think the whole story of the Bible is about. It's that God has come with a solution to our stench. Romans 5 verse 5 actually talks about God's love in this way, that he has poured out his love into our hearts through the Spirit. Because of what Jesus has come to do, God has poured out his soapy water into our stench and cleans us, gives us access to a righteousness that we don't possess ourselves. The stories of the rich ruler and Zacchaeus sum up the gospels that are available to all of us. And they leave us with those two options. The option of the believer is to run in repentance, to admit that we stink, and to run to Christ, because Christ has come with the solution. In Matthew chapter 5, he tells us exactly how he's going to do it. He bursts onto the scene in his first sermon, and he says, I've, come, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And what Jesus did by being born of flesh, living the perfect life, sinless life, accruing for himself a perfect spiritual resume before the Father. But then he took a sinner's death. He took a death of an unrighteous, undeserving person. What the Bible says he did in that moment when he took our death was that he transferred to us his righteous record. That by grace, through faith, we have a perfect righteousness, not because we have proved everybody that we're right, but that Christ has been right for us. That he has covered up, he has actually taken on our stench upon himself and cleaned us. He poured his love 
into our hearts. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we could become the righteousness of God. Now what's that mean? What does this look like in the everyday life? I would submit that it frees us in a way that we often don't take advantage of. It frees us from trying to anxiously always build up our own righteousness, be more right than that person about this opinion, think that we're better or convince ourselves we're better than our neighbors because we don't do that. It frees you from always having to be concerned with yourself because your righteousness is secure by grace through faith in Jesus. This is freeing for the individual, but also as we close, I just want you to be curious, to, to leave thinking, what would it look like for Christians to live this out? And how unique of a witness in the world would Christians be if we actually believed this? That instead of having to mask all of our unrighteousness, we could be free to admit that we're wrong. That people could look at us and not say, Christians are those who always think they're better, always think they're right. Those Christians are actually free because they're free to admit that they're wrong. We're a people whose righteousness rests not in ourself, but by grace through faith in Jesus, the one who earned it for us. And that frees us to be wrong. Let me pray for us. Father, you say in your word that a bruised reed you do not break, a flickering wick you do not put out, which all that means is that we smell, we stink. And you have come not to condemn us or shame us. You have come to pour out your love into our hearts through the Spirit. You have done that through your finished work of your Son. And it frees us to live a life of repentance, seeing that there is much more gain in seeing ourselves as we truly are than there is pain. Because as you say, as you ended your conversation with Zacchaeus, that you came to seek, to seek and to save the lost. You didn't come for people who have it together. You came for the ones who are only willing to admit that they don't. Give us the grace to hear this. Give us the grace to take advantage of it. And give us the grace to trust in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.